So spiritual cinema. Just an excuse for the minister to take time off in the middle of his day to go to the movies by himself. Right? Part of it. It's always been one of my favorite, favorite things to do. And now I get to do it for work. Not bad. Not bad work if you can get it. But what we're going to talk about over the next, I think it's 10 or 11 weeks, we're not going to give you movie reviews. You can get those online. You can get those in the paper. What we're going to talk about are the ways in which the movies that we watch or the movies that our communities are watching reflect something deep within us. Going back to when we first, as a species, drew on cave walls, we've been fascinated with what pictures and then moving pictures told us about ourselves. And we live in stories. Muriel Rukeyser, the poet, says, the universe is composed not of atoms, but of stories. That's how we live. That's how we find meaning. And so we have the opportunity in this time to take a look at what some of the stories are that are out there in our community, in the theaters, in the megaplexes, at Colonial Theater, the opportunity to go a little deeper through some pop culture over the next time up and through Labor Day. So we start out this Sunday with the biggest block, block, block eh, tongue twister clearly of the season as well, biggest blockbuster of the summer, Spider-Man 3. Now I got to tell you, I picked this one because it was released so long ago that I figured to give you an opportunity to at least see it before I might have preached on it. How many of you have actually seen it? All right. Well, if you can't make it to the movies this summer, at least you can make it to church. It's an opportunity here to learn what's out there. Spider-Man 3 was a movie that I was prepared not to like. I liked the first one. It was good in a comic book, not graphic novel kind of style. The second one I found very, very two-dimensional, almost one-dimensional. It was also overlong and at times overwrought, and its reach exceeded its grasp, and so I think fell flat, as flat as the words on the page in a comic could be. So even though I picked the film, I wasn't quite sure if I would like it. The thing is, I actually did. A lot. There's tremendous themes of courage, of hope, of forgiveness, of bravery, and of meaning in this film. I want to focus on those as we enter our time here today. Now let me say that because this is a blockbuster, there are also clearly scenes that were presented by the fever dreams of the Sony Pictures marketing department with the thought of lunchboxes and Xboxes in mind. Leaving those scenes aside, what I want to focus on today are those deeper spiritual ideas that the film really does wrestle with and struggle with. And so for those few of you who have seen it, by the nature of this sermon series, I'm going to leave out a lot of what's in the film to increase the focus and narrow that focus and have a good perspective. So what I want to give you first, if Will, you'll punch that up, is a list of the people in Spider-Man, which I wasn't assuming that many of you would need. Now I realize actually you will. So I'm going to walk through this just really briefly and give you a very, very condensed understanding of the plot. First, there is Peter Parker in Spider-Man. How many of you have heard of him? Okay, all right, we're not a complete loss then. Peter Parker slash Spider-Man. At the start of the movie, his life is going absolutely perfectly. Both as Spidey, as Spider-Man, the city of New York loves him, and also as Peter whose life has often lagged behind Spider-Man's life. That's the way it is sometimes with the superhero. But he's thriving in college, and he's about to get engaged. And he's about to get engaged to Mary Jane, MJ, 
Peter's one true love who he's pined after for years and finally they are together as a couple and she's really the only person who knows of his dual identity, Peter Parker and Spider-Man. But all is not well in her universe. She's on her opening night on Broadway and she tanks. So she's about to be fired. That's what's going on with her. There is Aunt May, who's the woman who raised Peter. She's the wise old crone whose wisdom always guides Peter back onto the path when he seems to have lost his way. And then there is Uncle Ben, who we see only in flashbacks. Uncle Ben, who we see only really in the first movie, who died. And it's his, almost the ghost of his self, that at times guide Peter, but also leaves a hole in Peter's heart. We also realize in this movie that he was not killed in the way that we thought if you saw the first movie. Actually, how many of you saw the first movie at least? All right, whew, I'm not, all right. Deck's not completely empty. Well, there are three new villains, and this is where it gets a little complex, so we're going to keep this up here so you can refer back to when I'm preaching this morning. There is Harry slash the new goblin. He is Peter's best friend, but also Spider-Man's chief rival, and he comes to know at the end of Spider-Man 2 that it was Peter who was responsible, although not willfully, for the death of Harry's father, the first goblin. He died battling Spider-Man, and he vows revenge. And that's one of the things that we're waiting for at the beginning of Spider-Man 3. Then there is also Flint Marco, the man who we learn for the first time in this movie who killed Uncle Ben and who battles Spider-Man as the Sandman. Now, this is the place where you really got to set aside and suspend your disbelief because you'll recognize you are in a comic book kind of movie when you see danger, warning, particle physics, particle physics experiment in process. Keep out. This is what Flint Marco falls into, a pit of sand in which a particle physics experiment is going on and his DNA, his genetic material, fuses... Maybe you can explain to me, Jim, how this will happen. Jim is a, it is a biochemist. It's impossible, I know. Just suspend your disbelief. When this happens, he emerges later, his alter ego, his villainous alter ego, as the Sandman. There is also Eddie Brock, who is Peter's professional rival as a photographer at the newspaper that he works for. He also becomes the character, the villain of Venom. He's an amoral go-getter who is transformed into Venom when, again, suspend your disbelief, this mysterious black goo falls from the sky. Now, again, we're dealing with a story in which a guy's genetic material has fused first with a genetically altered spider that he gets bitten at while going through a lab at Columbia University, and somehow overnight he goes through puberty instantaneously and becomes as strong as any human has ever been. Again, just take this all in, just for background. And there is another presence that really, in many ways, is the second star of the movie. It is that mysterious black goo that looks a little bit like the blob that falls from the sky. And it is that black goo that brings out Spider-Man and Peter Parker's shadow side. All the stuff that he maybe doesn't really want to cop to. All the stuff where the pride and the ego is and the neediness and also his big, big sense of self. Because if there's one thing Peter Parker and Spider-Man start out this movie with, it is with a huge swelled head. And so one of the first things that we're asked to take a look at in Spider-Man 3 is this theme. How do we deal with what we carry from the past? How can we honor it? But also, how can we let it go? One of the other reasons that I chose this message for this day is because it's Father's Day. 
an opportunity to take a look at where we come from, where we're going, what our blessings are, what the things are that aren't blessing our lives, particularly in our relationship with our fathers and with our parents. In this movie, there are three characters who are really struggling with the absence of a father figure or the absence of themselves as a father. The first is Peter, who still is so sorrowful for losing Uncle Ben, and that wound is reopened when he realizes that the person who he thought was responsible for Ben's death is not who he thought. And then there is Flint Marco, the Sandman himself, who also is struggling with his capability as a convicted felon to deal with his child who is sick, who is terminally ill, and why he turns to life a crime in the first place, because he does not feel he can be a capable father while living a life that is free of criminality. And also Harry, the new goblin, who, like Peter balancing him out, has a hole in his heart for the father who has gone from him. So the question is, starting out the movie, how do we break that chain? How do we let go of those things that are sorrowful, even if it is an inheritance of pain as well as an inheritance of blessing, of wisdom that we take from our past? How do we refuse to take responsibility for those things which we really can't control and hold on to those things that we can continue to shape? That's really what sets the plot in motion. The struggle runs throughout the entire movie, accepting what has happened to us and letting go what we cannot control. And it's expressed in this way as well. This happens to Spider-Man, and it's something we struggle with as a nation and as a country. How do we oppose evil and suffering without becoming the cause of it? That's what Spider-Man really, really struggles with throughout this entire movie. How does he oppose evil and suffering without becoming the cause of more of it in his life? There's a band I really like called the Drive-By Truckers. They call themselves Psychobilly or Alternative Country. And they have a song called Decoration Day. Some of you who may have lived in the South at one point in your life, I do remember this from a number of years ago. It's a Southern tradition of marking the graves with flowers on one particular day every year. It normally falls around Memorial Day, I actually believe. Marking the graves with flowers of your dearly departed. Now, in Drive-By Truckers' version of the song Decoration Day, it is not a good day. It is rather a reflection of the narrator to look back and see the kind of Hatfields and McCoy's nightmare that he has inherited. Going back generations, one family has been battling another, has been battling another, has been battling another. A son reflects in this song on the legacy of violence that he has inherited and that sadly he perpetuates even though he does not see the sense of it anymore. This is the last line of the chorus in the song. My daddy got shot right in front of his house. He had no one to fall on but me the kind of inheritance that the characters in Spider-Man are wrestling with. No one to fall on but me. And this is the spiritual side of that, not just in our own individual lives, but in our lives as a country and a nation. It's time, again, to always remember those words of Dr. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. He says, and we can't hear these words enough, the ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral begetting the very thing that it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, violence multiplies it. You may murder the liar, but you cannot murder the lie, nor establish the truth. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. So when Spider-Man's soul is taken possession of by this black goo and he literally turns into a blackened costume version of Spider-Man, which, by the way, can't filmmakers get beyond always calling something evil 
and black at the same time. It's like that moment, if you ever read the, or saw the movie version of the autobiography of Malcolm X, when his political and spiritual awakening begins, when he opens the dictionary and he starts to read it for the first time and he reads, what is white? White is pure. White is without taint. White as the driven snow. And then he goes to black, devoid of goodness, empty of qualities, blackness, a taint upon the soul. So that's just a little aside there. I'd like some of our filmmakers to start to get a little bit more creative and not fall back on those stock characters because you know what? It has impressions of how we think of each other as people. We're returning to the movie. After Spider-Man kills or thinks he has killed the Sandman, he talks with his Aunt May, who doesn't know again that he's Spider-Man. He's in Peter Parker at this point, and he's feeling really happy, really sort of joyful, that Flint Marco, the man who killed his uncle, is dead. But he awakens because Aunt May says something that cuts him to the quick, both as Peter Parker and as Spider-Man. She says, disappointedly, Spider-Man doesn't kill people. Spider-Man doesn't kill people. At his best, and it's really true, and I thought about it for the first time, every person who's died batting Spider-Man in all of the three movies up until this point has not died by Peter's hand. What Peter does, what Spider-Man does on a regular basis is stop people from committing evil and that sometimes, yes, they may die in the act of committing it, but he does not intentionally inflict murder or malice on another person, even even when they're opposing him. It's kind of like a story from the scripture where, da where King David, who's talked about in the scripture as, you know, the best of all time, the best of all the kings. Well, he thinks he's on top of the world, just like Peter is this top at the start of Spider-Man 3. And what he does is the story of David and Bathsheba. He's literally sort of sitting on his terrace one day, his kingly terrace, and he spies Bathsheba sunbathing, sort of, if he did that in that time. Chances are she's probably naked as well, too. As king, he can see those kinds of things, even though he's not supposed to. And what happens is he says, well, I want her. And he arranges for Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to be killed. And Bathsheba becomes one of his wives. And he feels, hey, it's king. It's like that Mel Brooks line from History of the World Part One. It's good to be the king. But there are these things called prophets who are walking around ancient Israel. And they spend a lot of time judging those people who have power and don't use it wisely. And so Nathan, knowing that he's got to trick the king into realizing that his conscience has been compromised, tells a story, almost sort of like in the Hamlet story, a story within it. And he talks about a man who takes what is not his and kills indiscriminately. And David says, where is this man? Where is this man who has done this awful thing? We must get him and punishes him. And Nathan turns to him and pointing says, thou art the man. Not you to man. <laughs> But thou art that man. And David awakens, and he recognizes how decrepit his leadership and his spirit has become. And Spider-Man does too in this moment. He recognizes his call is not to destroy life, but to save it. Not to destroy life, but to save it. On the other side, there is Eddie Brock slash Venom, who... Any of you see Lord of the Rings? See all the Lord of the Rings? Okay. A few more of you saw Lord of the Rings. Remember the end of Lord of the Rings when Frodo is just about to drop the ring back into the... It's in Mordor and all that kind of stuff. And I never really read the books, but I saw the movies. And he's about to drop the ring into the lava. And I wasn't that much of a geek. I was just sort of a semi-geek when I was growing up. But remember Gollum? He can't bear life without the ring. Frodo doesn't kill him. 
Frodo, like Spider-Man, his job is not to kill primarily, even though there is danger. His job is to heal. And so what Gollum does when he sees that ring going over, cast back into the fire from which it came, what does Gollum do? He follows it right in. His soul has become so wedded and so corrupted that he cannot imagine life without the power, even if it comes at such a cost of his life and of his spirit. This is very much what Venom, or why he becomes Venom with Eddie Brock. He cannot stand life without that power. Now, the thing about the goo, and you'll recognize this if you ever see the movie, it only really attaches itself to people who really have that thing inside them already. Spider-Man goes through a dark night of the soul, literally, and this is where I could tell they were playing on some very religious terrain. Spider-Man literally goes through a dark night of the soul when he tears, tears this black goo suit off of himself, where? In a church. And it's the church bells, literally the bong of them, that drive out the goo. But even when it is separated from Eddie at the end of the movie, he cannot stand it. And he will not have his dark night of the soul. And he chooses to die with it rather than just be himself. This is one of the other things that Spider-Man 3 talks about that Peter comes to realize and Spider-Man comes to realize. And it's something I really took to heart. That where there is, as they talk about in the first movie, where there is great power, there is great responsibility. The Bible puts it this way. For one to whom much is given, much is expected. It is the reason that I am not called as minister magistrate. Historically, that's what a magistrate does. He or she sits in judgment high up above. Minister literally means mini, small, a servant. This is what, this is what Peter forgets and what Spider-Man forgets at the beginning of the movie. He forgets that he is but a servant, but a vehicle for the gifts that have been placed into his care for the care of other people. He starts to believe his own press clippings, and he forgets as well. I've got to tell you, that's a real risk for all of us in leadership. It really is. He starts to forget what it is to be a servant, what it is to exist first for others. And so we hear this phrase over and over and over again throughout the movie. It takes him a while to realize that. It's not about me. It's not about me. Those of you who are familiar with the term bodhisattva in the Buddhist tradition, you could say that he has forgotten his vow to be a bodhisattva, one who will be and be here until all beings are safe or, in the traditional language, have reached enlightenment. Remember, as I said, that when the movie opens, Peter's got the world on a string, everything going his way. And what he forgets is this lesson, and it's important for all of us. You know that old blues song, The World Doesn't Know You When You're Down and Out? Well, everyone wants to know us when we're on the top. He forgets what it is to stay with the world even when he is on top of it. At the outset, he forgets these words, one of my favorite quotes about the nature of the spiritual life, and especially upends the kind of spiritual egoism that I know I feel from time to time. Pema Chodron, who is a Buddhist monk and a nun, wrote these words. They're so pointed and so important. She said, spiritual awakening is frequently described as a journey to the top of a mountain. We leave our attachments and we leave worldliness behind and slowly make our way to the top. At the peak, everything is clear, 
and we have as individuals transcended all pain. The only problem with this metaphor of the mountaintop is that we leave all others behind. Our drunken brother, our schizophrenic sister, our tormented animals, our pained friends. Their suffering continues unrelieved by our personal escape. In discovering the nature of our true self, we find that in fact the journey goes down, not up. It's as if the mountain is pointed toward the center of our being and the center of the earth. And when we grow spiritually, truly, we move inward and downward, however we can. At our own pace, without speed, without aggression, we move down and we move down and we move down and we move down. With us, the great thing is, millions of others are moving as well our companions in awakening from fear and from pain. And at the bottom, and I love this, especially given our name as a congregation, at the bottom we discover water, the healing water of our common compassion. Right down there in the thick of things, we discover the love that is inside each of us that will not die. You see, when Peter Parker slash Spider-Man is on top, he's not evil at all. He's just really, really self-concerned. He can't hear literally. When MJ, I mean, imagine this. You finally reach Broadway, and the next day you are eviscerated by every critic in town, which is what happens to her. And she goes to her next practice for the next night's performance, and she said, didn't you get the message? We don't need you anymore. And she goes to Peter, Spider-Man, the one person she thinks she can count on, and what does he say? Everything's great. Everything's perfect. Everything's going to be fantastic. Now, the thing going on with Peter is he's the high school nerd who finally got the head cheerleader. And this is another lesson we learned from Spider-Man 3, that when we place each other on pedestals, we make it inevitable that we will fall. MJ is so high up on that pedestal. I mean, look at the word idol. Idolatry. He has made her into an idol of perfection that he cannot see when his life is going so well, he cannot see the pain that she is in. He cannot recognize that she too is imperfect and she too bleeds and she too is in pain and suffers. And so especially, especially the lesson for those of us here, those of us closest to the people that we love the most, especially on this Father's Day and especially contravening that wisdom from love story, Love means always having to say you're sorry. And love even means more than this. The blessing that we can be forgiven as well. That we can ask for forgiveness when we have been less than we should be. Because we are imperfect creatures. Because we need to be understood. And because we need forgiveness. Especially from those people who are closest to us. There is a moment earlier in the film when the black Spider-Man is battling the Sandman and he's enraged and you can see the anger and the fear and the hatred and the vengeance in his eyes and one of the things this movie makes clear is how good vengeance feels. So dangerously close to justice, justice's shadow side. And just before he is about to, he thinks, put Sandman slash Flint Marco out of this life, he says, if you want forgiveness, get religion. If you want forgiveness, get religion, because you're not 
going to get it from me. And the rest of the film is spent with Peter learning to flip that around. If you want religion, all of us get forgiveness. If we want religion, get forgiveness. That's what the word religion means. We've talked about this before. Religare, the Latin, means to put back together that which has been taken apart. Re ligare, to put the ligaments, the tissue, the love, our hearts, back together in this life. This is finally the essential message of the film, flipping what Peter says and learning. If he wants to get religion, if we want to get religion, learn about forgiveness. This is where he claims the responsibility for his past, even the painful stuff, and thereby he learns to forgive. Now, I'm not a big Eagles fan at all, and I'm not really a big Don Henley fan, but there's this song called Heart of the Matter that maybe some of you know, and I think it's one of the most spiritually wise pop songs that's ever been penned. It's clearly about a love affair or relationship that's gone wrong. And he, the songwriter, is reflecting on it. And it's got this beautiful ancient image in it. He says, I've been trying to get down to the heart of the matter because the flesh will get weak and the ashes will scatter. So I'm thinking about forgiveness. Forgiveness, even if, even if you don't love me anymore. Because our lives are imperfect, because the flesh ultimately for all of us gets weak, and the will can get weak as well, and ashes to ashes, dust to dust, this beautiful stuff that we share, all will be joined back up with. We don't exactly know, but it's not going to remain in this form, at least. This is what we know. And so from Don Henley, I want to take you to Reinhold Niebuhr, perhaps the most famous theologian of the 20th century. He talked about in his great two-volume work, The Nature and Destiny of Man, Volumes 1 and Volumes 2. What he talked about in that book is that we have a dual substance, a dual nature as human beings. We are both finite and we are free. Both finite and limited and free and transcendent beings. So much that we cannot change, so much, especially, finally, our mortality, and so much that we are able to transcend in this life. So much that we are able through our action, through our love, through our will, through our inherent goodness, to say we are not just locked into what that singer in the drive-by trucker song said, that because the past or the father or whoever it is falls on us, we have no choice but to say we will only live out that which has been before us. We can put an end to those things if, if we will forgive and if we will be forgiven and if we will move on with our healing through love in this life. And so it is in the final battle of Sandman that I found myself actually crying in Spider-Man 3. See, the Sandman, Flint Marco, unlike Eddie, unlike Venom, never does evil because he really wanted to will evil. He does evil because he's in a desperate spot, because his daughter is sick, and so he starts robbing banks. And he recognizes after he becomes Sandman, well, his daughter's still sick, He's even better at robbing banks right now because he could, all he's got to do is find a sand pit somewhere and he grows to 40 feet, 50 feet. But he comes to the final battle with Spider-Man. And the two of them recognize they're not going to fight each other anymore. They just fight each other to a draw. There's no real way Spider-Man could kill him. And Spider-Man doesn't want to anymore. He tells a story and he uses these words. 
I just want you to understand, even if you can't forgive me. Even evil has a history and has a context, and it's not all the same. Spider-Man looking inside of himself, knowing that his call no longer is to vengeance, forgives him. He understands that even as he took the person that he loved in life most from him, he took his beloved Uncle Ben. Still, he could say, he did not will this, and I forgive you. And then something beautiful happens. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Sandman literally just sort of gets absorbed into the atmosphere. So the word atonement means, break it down, at one meant. Being forgiven, having let go of the horrible things that he has done. Sandman is ready to just be absorbed into life. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. He has reached heaven, nirvana, absorption, whatever the words are they can't truly convey. But through his experience of being reunited with Peter, even though that horrible thing has caused them pain, even though that horrible thing has caused them pain, they recognize that there is a love greater than that. Reinhold Niebuhr, some of you know, is the guy who also penned the Serenity Prayer. And he wrote these words a number of years ago that I love. He said, nothing worth doing is completed, ever completed in our lifetime. Therefore, we are saved by hope. Nothing true or beautiful or good makes sense in any immediate context of history. Therefore, we are saved by faith. Nothing we do, however virtuous, can be accomplished alone. Therefore, we are saved by love. And no virtuous act is quite as virtuous from the standpoint of our friend as our foe, as from our own perspective upon ourselves. Therefore, we are saved by the final form of love, that is forgiveness. Therefore, we are saved by the final form of love, which is forgiveness. And so in the end, the story comes back around to Peter, not Spider-Man, and to MJ. The two love each other still. And the movie ends in this, a final embrace. They're still not engaged to be married. The scales have come off of their eyes. They probably will never see each other in exactly the ideal terms that had seen each other before. And so I hope this is the end of Spider-Man. It won't be because it makes too much money. But I hope that they move out of the comic book, and I hope they move into life, where love is difficult and wonderful and forgiving and finally healing. And the final form of it knows that we can be reunited with each other. So I hope we don't ever see Mary Jane in Spider-Man 3 or Spider-Man 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, whatever, again. Because in this, they have started to enter into maturity. And in this, we can say goodbye to them. And also in recognizing that they are starting to become as we wish we would be, we can say hello to ourselves as well. And our struggles, and all the ways that we struggle towards, yearn for, and find forgiveness and love in each of our lives. Amen. And may you live in blessing.